Girl here today with Dr. Deborah Silverstein, and today we're going to be talking about microcirculatory effects of intravenous fluid administration in anesthetized dogs undergoing elective ovarohysterectomy. Dr. Silverstein's an associate professor of critical care at the Matthew J. Ryan Veterinary Hospital at University of Pennsylvania. Deb, thanks so much for doing this podcast. Totally appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dr. Lee. I appreciate the invitation to join you. It's always a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about fluid therapy. And one of my particular interests is the microcirculation in dogs and cats. And what I've had the opportunity to do at the University of Pennsylvania is to actually investigate the effects of different therapies on the microcirculation. And the microcirculation is really a fancy term for the artery, the arterioles, the venules, and the capillaries in all living animals and people, which are the vessels less than 100 micrometers in diameter. And in people, it comprises about half a kilometer squared. Over 100 billion microcirculatory vessels exist. And these are really the vessels that are responsible for delivering oxygen, nutrients to the tissues and thus the cells, as well as removing the waste products from tissues. Whereas the macrocirculation is what's responsible for really delivering the blood to the microcirculation that does all of the hard work. So without microcirculatory flow, the tissues and cells really cannot do their job. And although clinically and in anesthetized patients, uh, what we can really monitor in a practical sense is the macrocirculation. When we look at things like heart rate and blood pressure and pulse oximetry, what really matters to the cells is microcirculatory flow and and how many microcirculatory vessels are available to deliver oxygen and nutrients to the tissues and cells. And in times of, let's say, hypotension, the body has the autoregulatory abilities to actually open up or shut down the capillary networks according to demand, which is done by changes in pressure or stretch or acid base or even just metabolic need. So the cells can communicate with the capillaries and based on demand, increase or decrease capillary network availability so that there's shunting or increased availability of capillaries to a particular tissue bed. So what the research I do actually looks at is it takes a video microscope, which looks a little bit like the end of a pencil, and it has some circumferentially placed light-emitting diodes that use a green light with a wavelength of about 530 nanometers to excite the hemoglobin that's under the mucosa. It doesn't penetrate very deeply into a tissue, so we use a mucosal layer to evaluate the microcirculation, and it makes the hemoglobin a contrast agent such that the reflected image comes back through the camera and then goes through a digital analog converter, and we see the image of the microcirculation as moving red blood cells on a screen, and we are able to then analyze that image through various techniques to look at density, perfused vessel density, total vessel density, as well as subjectively microcirculatory flow index to try and evaluate how the microcirculation is perfusing that particular tissue bed. And because the oral mucosa is evolutionarily and embryologically developed from 
the gastrointestinal cells, we can assume that the microcirculation to the oral mucosa may parallel that of GI tract, which is obviously one of the major organs that we care about in terms of perfusion. And this has been studied experimentally and shown to be the case that GI tonometry and oral microcirculation do parallel each other. So we actually looked at dogs undergoing elective ovarian hysterectomy that were found to be clinically healthy. And we looked at the microcirculation during anesthesia right after induction, as well as at 30 and 60 minutes. And we randomized these dogs to get either zero, 10 mils per kilo per hour, or 20 mils per kilo per hour of lactated ringer solution intravenously following induction in our baseline measurements of the microcirculation. Our goal was really to try and quantitatively assess whether or not giving fluid therapy to healthy animals during a fairly short procedure, which granted may be a little bit longer at a teaching hospital, was associated with any benefits or perhaps detriment. The idea being that we really don't have a lot of research in veterinary medicine to say to general practitioners or specialists, you really need to give fluid therapy during general anesthesia. We know that animals that are given a lot of drugs to keep them anesthetized have increased fluid requirements due to things like vasodilation, maybe decreased cardiac contractility, and perhaps even fluid losses through the respiratory tract or open body cavities that might benefit from fluid therapy. And we also know that the American Animal Hospital Association and American Association of Feline Practitioners does recommend giving perioperative fluid administration as a standard of care. But we also know that for very short procedures, it may not always be necessary and that most animals will do just fine without it. So I do think there are a lot of veterinarians who don't give it and it's probably fine. We can't really measure whether or not an animal has decreased microcirculatory flow or maybe loses a few nephrons in a short procedure if the blood pressure drops just a little and we don't know it. So really the aim of the study was to say, is it that important that you give 10 or 20 mils per kilo per hour of fluids during anesthesia, usually isotonic crystalloids, or perhaps it doesn't make a difference and we could just give none. And we thought the best way to look at this in a short-term study would be to actually look at the microcirculation. So that's what we did. We took three movies at 0, 30, and 60 minutes in 48 dogs divided into three groups for the three different fluid quantities. And we basically stored videos that were recorded for at least 20 seconds each. And we looked at four different parameters, basically. It's called total vessel density. One is perfused vessel density, proportion of perfused vessels, and then microcirculatory flow index. And we also monitored all of the macrocirculatory perfusion parameters that I mentioned previously, heart rate, blood pressure, pulse oximetry, body temperature, and tidal CO2, just to be certain that these animals were cardiovascularly stable during general anesthesia. And we kept them all on a the same anesthesia protocol for consistency. And basically what we found of interest was that the vessels that we typically associate with the true delivery of oxygen and nutrients are the smallest microcirculatory vessels that are generally considered to be capillaries. And those are the ones with a diameter less than 20 micrometers. And 
we actually found no difference in any of the groups in the vessels that were less than 20 micrometers. But what we did find was that the vessels greater than 20 micrometers, which are probably the arterioles and the venules rather than the actual capillaries themselves, did have some changes in total vessel density and perfused vessel density. So the actual numbers of arterioles and venules increased in the animals that were getting 20 mils per kilo per hour versus zero or 10 mils per kilo per hour. And the perfused vessel density in the 20 mil per kilo per hour was also greater versus the zero mils per kilo per hour group. We're not totally sure how to interpret this. It's, it's not necessarily something where we can say, okay, Dr. Smith, you really need to give fluids to all elective, healthy, clinically treated animals that are undergoing general anesthesia or else you're going to cause problems because we're not sure what arteriolar and venular recruitment truly means. We can surmise that it might be desirable to have more arterial and venular recruitment in these animals because it means that there's more blood and oxygen available for the tissues. It may help prevent overperfusion of those small capillaries in the event that we were giving too much or perhaps serve as a reservoir in the event that these animals become hypotensive. But it's hard to say that the arterioles and venules themselves are beneficial. In most studies that have been done looking at the microcirculation, it's actually the vessels less than 20 micrometers that are associated with improvement in outcome, especially with sepsis, improvement in oxygen extraction in the tissues or in, in getting better, so to speak. So we were hoping to see changes in those vessels less than 20. I think seeing a change in the vessel size greater than 20 micrometers is most likely a positive change, but I don't know if it's a change that would lead us to now say you're medically neglectful not to give fluids. I think we still should abide by the guidelines and the standard of care that advises for veterinary practitioners to give perioperative fluid administration, whether that be five or 10 mils per kilo per hour according to the patient but I think we still have future research to do. Interestingly, there were 14 out of the 48 dogs included in this study that required an intravenous fluid bolus during the study because the Doppler blood pressure fell below 90 millimeters of mercury, which was our cutoff for hypotension. And following that bolus of 10 mils per kilo, all of those dogs had restoration of what we consider to be normal blood pressure. So I think it does show that monitoring blood pressure during surgery is important. Having fluids available and or bolusing fluids to normalize blood pressure is important and trying to do what we can to ensure that we treat the treatable and decrease the risk for maybe organ injury or organ dysfunction following surgery, not only in healthy animals, but especially in those that may be at higher risk of problems following general anesthesia is especially important. It's probably also important to say that we, we had some limitations in the study since there was a small number of patients overall. I think veterinary studies are fraught with this problem in general, but we, we had fewer than 50 patients. It was supported by Abbott Animal Health, and based on our budget, this was the number we were able to do. 
We did have some videos excluded because of quality. We did a very strict quality assessment after we had obtained the videos, and some of them had very mild, unacceptable changes in either focus or movement that made them not analyzable. We had one dog at the beginning of the study that had pigmented mucous membranes, and we were not able to adequately evaluate the microcirculation because pigment in the submucosal layer can look a lot like the hemoglobin and makes it hard to evaluate. We can't rule out a type 2 error potential as well. So there were some limitations in this study, but I think we're making progress slowly but surely in our understanding of the microcirculation and how it affects our assessment of healthy and sick dogs. And I hope that in the future, we can look at maybe different fluid types, maybe looking at blood products as well and how that affects the microcirculation and maybe look more closely at liberal versus restrictive fluid therapy in dogs and cats too. And during anesthesia, maybe during just treatment in general of critical illness, as well as comparing it to maybe markers of organ dysfunction, which are becoming more common as a study tool. What if we take the same population and look at, let's say, kidney injury markers along with the microcirculation and use synthetic colloids in addition to isotonic crystalloids at perhaps even higher rates? Maybe we would see a difference. So I think the take-home message is keep using intravenous fluids perioperatively because that is the standard of care. We need to do further research to better understand what the benefits and risks of our fluid therapy are. But hopefully that research is not too far away and soon we'll have more answers for these questions. Thank you so much. I do have a great idea would be to see if you could do evaluate microcirculation to renal blood flow with the use of colloids <laughs> to see whether or not there's an issue oh, with colloids definitely. and uh, acute kidney injury. But right. I wish it were a little easier to get the camera onto the kidneys. Exactly. Um, I would I would love to do that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we are starting to look at some kidney injury markers with colloids, you know, because there's such controversy about you know, their use in veterinary medicine. But I I think there's enough people out there who feel like colloids should never be used and they just don't even buy them that we actually have good control groups. You know, Tufts just doesn't touch the stuff. So um, we're hoping to maybe use them as a control group and we'll be a treatment group and compare markers of injury versus not. That's awesome. Um, that's that's a totally different podcast, huh? <laughs> Huge controversial that's a different topic. Podcast, yeah. Excellent. So, well, thank you so yeah, much. But I agree. There's there's still a lot to be done. I don't know. When I after I saw that uh, your study and the microcirculation and the ten versus twenty mils per kg per hour, my general thought walking away from that study was. I still believe it's important to perfuse these patients with fluid therapy. So I thought your study was fantastic in helping show that. So for those of you guys who are interested, you can check out the YouTube video on microcirculation found at penvet.com. And Dr. Silverstein, I just wanted to thank you so much again for taking the time to be interviewed on this podcast today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And best of luck. Keep giving fluids.